A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Guerrero. The 11 Olympic team members slain in West Germany. The Olympic Games. So geheist waren die Brüder in Amerika. Von Kaufen schaffen es es gibt Out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little. It is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geber. Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites, and this, ep- this next installment in our ongoing series entitled Jewish Saviors of the Holocaust, which will cover the heroic story of the Novogrudic Ghetto Tunnel Escape and the Bielski Partisans has been generously sponsored Le'ili Nishmas Leah Bas Nachum, Lisa Rebel, an escapee through the tunnel of the Novogruda Ghetto, and a partisan with the Bielski Partisan group. Um, so before we get to this incredible story, which might just, just might be the greatest story of our entire series, um, we are continuing this series. It's going to be Several installments coming up in the next several weeks. Um, there's some of the upcoming episodes. We're going to, I'm going to talk about um, the working group in Slovakia, or Mechar Weissmann, Lugisi Fleischmann. I'm going to talk about the very interesting and strange story of Oswald Rufeisen, or Brother Daniel, a Jew, uh, some, a Jew and also later apostate, who saved uh, other Jews in the Mir ghetto. Um, we're going to talk about um, a, a, a gynecologist obstetrician from Hungary, Dr. Gisela Pearl, who saved Jewish women in Auschwitz. And there's going to be several other stories. We have stories from Greece, from, from all over uh, Nazi-occupied Europe. And, um, and some of them are already sponsored, but there are some sponsorships still available. So if you'd like to sponsor one of these stories in this very special series about Jews saving other Jews during the Holocaust, then contact me at Yehuda at YehudaGeberer.com to arrange the sponsorship. I also want to give another update about my upcoming trip to the United States. I will be in the United States in the New York area from July 26th through August 1st. That is um, in just a little over a week. That's going to be the last, uh, you know, around Rosh Chodesh Av, right at the beginning of the nine days, an auspicious time in Jewish history. Um, so the most important announcement is, is that there's going to be a public cemetery tour at the Mount Judah Cemetery, um, the Harmanuchis of the United States, basically, one of the greatest concentrations of Kivrit Tzadikim in the entire world. Um, very rich of Jewish histories, and it's open to all the listeners of Jewish History Soundbites and beyond. Bring your family, friends, 
Um, it's going to be Friday morning, July 29th at 9.30 a.m. That's Reish Chodesh Av. And you can register for it on my website, uh, YehudaGeberer.com. YehudaGeberer.com. On the homepage, it's very easy. Just go on to YehudaGeberer.com on the homepage and just click on the Mount Judah Cemetery um, uh, sign-up registration form so I know that you're coming and fill in your details and... Uh, and it's very easy, very simple, very straightforward. So we're looking forward, I'm looking forward to seeing a lot of the listeners in person, and it's going to be a great tour. So once again, it's going to be Friday morning, July 29th, 9.30 a.m. That's Reish Chodesh Av. I know that's a weekend, and I know I heard a lot of complaints from the Brooklyn crowd that they're up in the mountains, and it's inconvenient, they're up in the mountains uh, for the weekends, and and the, therefore they're not going to be able to attend. I already got a lot of flack for it, but I did leave an option. Check it out on the website. There is an option for another one. So if you if it doesn't work out for you Friday morning, for whatever reason, then click on the other option. If there is enough interest, I'm going to see who went into what which one. If there's enough interest, I will I will open up a second tour during the week. I have to figure out exactly the time, some technical issues with when the cemetery hours are, but we'll figure it out. And if there's enough of an interest, I'll do it, I'll open another one for during the week. So please uh, don't give up if, uh, if Friday morning doesn't work for you. But if Friday morning does work for you, then I'm looking forward to seeing you all. And you can register on my website, yehudageberer.com. It's right there on the homepage. And you can all come and Tell your friends about it, and I'll post links and, and flyers, and, and, and you'll see it all over uh, Twitter and social media, and I'll send it out, and, and uh, emails, and, and you'll, it'll be out there. Now, besides for that, in addition to the public Mount Judah Cemetery tour, or tours, I'll also be available for lectures, if you want your shul or your community uh, to have me come and speak a little bit about a topic on Jewish history, then contact me at Yehuda at YehudaGeber.com. We can arrange during that week. There are still some slots open uh, for me to come and lecture, and we can work out an exciting topic that will be of interest to all. So having said that, now we can finally get to the point, which is the Novogrudic uh, Tunnel Escape and the Bielski Brothers. The Novogrudic part, there's um, a, lot of, a lot of material out there, um, it's a very interesting story. There's There's been articles written. There's a book, uh, Sarah Cohn. She's done a tremendous amount of work on this. Um, she's either has already published or is about to publish a book about it. Um, I don't know where it's holding. And there's 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 material that's on, uh, online. There's articles been published. Um, there is the Museum of Jewish Resistance in Novogrudek, in Belarus, which I've been at several times. I've been to... Nice little quaint little museum right where in the courthouse where the Novogrita ghetto was and and where the tunnel is and a memorial and a museum and exhibits and names and everything. It's very nice to bring groups there. Um, there's pl- several videos online, documentaries that have been made that you could see on YouTube about the Novogrita tunnel escape. I personally had the great privilege of interviewing as far as I know, she's still alive. May she live and be well. Fanya Dunyats. Uh, as far as I know, she's still alive and well. Um, over 100, last I checked. Um, and she, I interviewed her a couple of years ago. 
She was, I think, 97, 98 at the time. And um, as far as I know, she's the last survivor from the tunnel escape who went through the tunnel that night on September 26, 1943. Um, Professor Yehuda Bauer, the great uh, researcher of all things related to the Holocaust, he's written uh, quite extensively about Novardic, Novogrudic as well. And I used uh, all those sources, and especially Bauer's article for this podcast. That's about that. We'll get to the Bielski brother partisans. There's a whole bunch of other sources for that story. I'm trying to squeeze two huge topics, which can easily, each one on its own, can easily be two or three episodes. We're going to somehow squeeze both into one. And you, you notice that I said Novogrudik, and really, you know, many people know the town as Novarduk, which is a mid-sized town. It's not some little shtetl. It's a mid-sized, uh, meaning, meaning shtetls in general are mid-sized towns. Derfels are small little places. No, 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 uh, Novardik had several thousand Jews living in the town, close to 6,000 Jews living there before the war. So it was a nice-sized place. It wasn't uh, a tiny little uh, area. And when people refer to the town of Novardik, where the Aruch HaShulchan, or Bichil Michal Halevi Epstein, was the rabbi, they referred to it as Novardik. When people refer to the town where Yosef Yezel Horovitz, the altar of Novardik, had his Musr Yeshiva, had his radical Musr Yeshiva, they referred to the town as Novardik. But when people talk about the ghetto and the tunnel escape through the tunnel from the ghetto, they refer to it as Novogrudik, which is obviously the Russian name for the town. Novardik is the Yiddish name for the town. That's okay, that, 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 uh, that we've encountered before. But the, the, what's interesting is, is that it's very exclusive. If you're talking about the Musr Yeshiva, it's only Novardik. No one ever calls it Novogrudik. And if you're talking about the ghetto and the tunnel, then it's only Novogrudik. No one ever refers to it as Novardik. So I'm going to follow in that set. I have no idea why, but I'm going to follow that way. And I'm going to only refer to it as Novogrudik. But just so you know, it's the place that you know of as Novardik. And it's the same place. It's not some other funny town that you've never heard of. It's a quite a well-known place called Novardik. But it is referred to by its Russian name in this context um, as Novogrudik. I remember many years ago, I was at the museum up in... Uh, Kibbutz Lochamei HaGetaot in northern Israel next to Akko. And I saw a model. Subsequently, the model was taken out because they redid the museum. When I was a kid, they still had this little model there of the Novogruda ghetto with the tunnel. And that was the first time I had ever heard of the story, and I always got curious about it. And then uh, two, three years ago, when I was interviewing the survivors for Yad Vashem, and I had the privilege of interviewing Fanya Dunyets, like I said, uh, she told me this story, and I went back for a follow-up interview. It was absolutely incredible. She remembered vividly the details, and and um, it was it really exposed me to the story. And since then, I've been researching it. I've been reading up on it. Uh, I really, really connected, resonated with me this story. So I'm really happy to share it with you today. In addition, like I said on the groups, when we go to Belarus, I try to make sure to stop in Novardik so we can go to the Museum of Jewish Resistance. And uh, I'm in touch with the people who run it. Um, a lot of funding for this museum came from one of the most prominent families subsequently who emerged from that tunnel, and that is the Kushner uh, family. Um, and, and so they, they provided a lot of the uh, funding for the museum. And I attended a virtual Ereviyun, like an evening uh, 
lecture get together about the, uh, the Novogrodek uh, uh, ghetto tunnel escape and uh, documents and monuments and in fact that night that Ereviyun so it was it was Zoom it was uh, so I was so one of the attendees of that of that get together was Aaron Bielski Aaron Bell who's also still alive may he live and be well change his name to Bell. So I saw him on the Zoom screen. He's the youngest Bielski brother, the only uh, living Bielski brother. He was a teenager during the war in the Bielski partisan camp in the Nalabaki Forest in Belarus. And uh, today he's living in Florida, so he was still alive, so I was able to get to see him uh, on the Zoom screen as well. So I have so, there's something of an obsession with this story. Um, you know, everyone knows about the great escape um, you know, the, most people know because of the 1963 movie starring uh, Steve McQueen, um, which was fantastic, but a lot of it was fictionalized. Uh, the motorcycle stunt never really happened in the in the real story. But that the great escape uh, from Stalag Luft uh, three on March 24th, uh, the night of March 24th, 25th, 1944, was of. Prisoners of war, officers in the in the RAF, you know, primarily Air Force officers of the British Air Force, and um, and they, you know, they, they it's called the Great Escape. Three of them got away, um, and it's the Great Escape. There's also the escape from Sobibor on October 14th, 1943, um, and there are comparisons made to the Novogrodek escape as well where in, in Sobibor, 300 Jews got to the forest, but less than 50 survived the war. Um, and, and the Sobibor escape was actually very similar to Novogrodek because uh, Alexander, Sasha Pachersky and, and Leon Feldhedler, the, one who ran, the ones who ran this, the Sobibor escape, they even had an option of digging a tunnel at one point before they decided on an open revolt, which maybe we'll get to later on in this series as well. We can cover the Sobibor escape. It's interesting story as well. So it's kind of the opposite of Novogrodek. So what, 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 these, those are two famous escapes, probably because a movie was made about both of them, Sobibor and the Great Escape, whereas the Novogrodek one is not a great escape, it is the greatest escape. The greatest escape of the entire World War II and the Holocaust was this Novogrodek tunnel escape. Out of 232 Jews who tried to get, get out, 170 got to the forest, and almost all of them survived the war. Um, incredible, mostly because of the Bielski partisans. They all ran from the tunnel to the Bielski partisans. That was the whole idea. So they were trying to get there. So it's this combination of this courageous effort to dig out from the ghetto, go through a tunnel, and uh, make it to the Bielski partisans and survive the war. This is the greatest escape of the entire war. So um, that's a, a very important story. So, like I said, the, the, one of the famous families there is the Kushners. Um, there, there was the, the uh, two sisters, uh, Ray and Lisa, um, their father. Their father. The rest of the family was killed, including a brother, during the escape. Ray or Reichel later married Joseph Kushner, and the rest is history. Her grandchildren are making history. But um, when I show the groups in the barracks, in the courthouse, in the Museum of Jewish Resistance in Novogrodek, I show them the Kushner names by the barracks and say that their, uh, the living accommodations of the family have improved since then. 
But in reality, the Kushners are Navardikers, so it's interesting also. Navardik, uh, maybe the Navardic Musar style, not sure how much that filtered down. But they're the, a big part of the story is the Bielski brothers, and, and that's really its own story. So we have Professor Nechama Tesh um, wrote a book called Defiance, which is the definitive work on the Bielski partisans, a fantastic book, and much, much, many articles have been written about it. And then in 2008, of course, a movie uh, with the same name, Defiance, was made about the uh, Bielski brothers, uh, and, uh, and uh, uh, that, that, was, that put, put the story on the map as well. I've met several members of the Bielski family camp over the years uh, from those, that partisan group and spoken to them about their experiences as well. So um, the key to making something famous is definitely get a movie made about it. So to our Hollywood listeners out there, we need to make a movie about the Novogrudic uh, tunnel escape. So the the story goes, you know, Jewish community in Novardic, Novogrudic before the wars, large, prestigious community, important one. Then there's the Soviet occupation at the beginning of the war, obviously, because it's in eastern Poland, so they're under the Soviets. Businesses are nationalized. Um, and then there's the Nazi invasion, June 22, 1941. Uh, Operation Barbarossa, the Nazis invade the Soviet Union, which included eastern Poland and the Baltic states at this point. And right away with the invasion following the Wehrmacht, the German army, is these four units, SS units of Einsatzgruppe and killer squads, and they start the massacres of the Jews of the Soviet Union, which uh, Novogrudik was included in that at this point, and therefore many of them are killed in the initial massacres um, in outside of the town, and some are preserved for slave labor in a ghetto that's established. And eventually the escape takes place, which is the, you know, the last Jews of the ghetto, 232 Jews, down from 6,000 with the Nazi invasion, so almost all Jews in Novartic were killed, um, by that point, but the escape takes place on September 26, 1943. Um, so the, the time frame that we're talking about is from June 1941 to September 1943, a little over uh, 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 two years. I'm going to skip uh, to get to the escape itself. I'm not going to talk about the Novogruda ghetto and the travails and the massacres. The second massacre of the residents of the ghetto takes place on August 7th, 1942, and uh, between three and 5,000 Jews of Novogrudik are murdered at this point. So you're talking about the overwhelming majority are killed by the Nazis and their collaborators in the summer of 1942. Um, there is a testimony that there was an attack by unarmed Jews on the Germans who were leading them to the murder site, and they're, of course, killed immediately. Many uh, testimonies mention the murder of children who were hiding in the courthouse so the surviving Jews after this massacre is about 1,200 Jews. About half of them are in the courthouse building in Novogrudik, where there's shops for craftsmen, and others in a suburb, another 500 or so Jews in a suburb called Prasheika. Uh, the ones who are in the courthouse are kept closed in a stable without food or water for three days before they're allowed to settle in the new ghetto. Um, the Jews were massacred openly in front of the local population. The Christians came out to see the surviving Jews, friends, meaning their Christian friends, their Belarusian friends, sometimes threw some bread to their Jewish acquaintances while secretly praying that they should uh, finally get rid of them so they could keep their homes. Uh, Kaddish was said, even by non-religious people, we have testimonies to that as well. 
So in reaction to these massacres, Jews began fleeing to the forest. Um, some of them joined the Polish underground. Uh, some of them joined Soviet partisan groups. Um, they, some of them find the, the, the early parts of the Jewish partisans. There's the Jewish partisans in Lipichansky Forest. I remember Fania Dunyach told me her brother was had a Jewish unit there in the Lipichansky Forest. That's how he survived. Um, and and there was there was other other Jewish units near Slonim, uh, and which is not that far away. And then also in the right there in the Novogrodek area was the Bialskis. Um, so there was. Um, there was there some. There's another shtetl nearby where where Fania, this this woman who I interviewed, she came from Zetel. As it happens, the Chafetz Chaim was born in Zetel, so I guess it's an important town. And and the survivors from Zetel, uh, some of them uh, joined the Bielski group as well. And Bielski, Tuvia, and his brothers had sent emissaries to to back to the ghettos in the area to Zetel, to Novogradik, to Lida. To, to Branovich, to all the ghettos in the area, to take people out. That's what's so incredible about Bielski. He wasn't just concerned about saving those who had somehow made it to him. He actively encouraged people to escape the ghetto, to come and join his group. And he said, I'll protect you, we'll take care of you, and we're going to save you. Um, so people started, Jews started escaping from the courthouse, despite the, in, in Novogrodek, where the ghetto is, despite the close surveillance by the Germans, in one instance, 11 people managed to get away after they made a key to the courthouse gate. They made a replica of the key to the courthouse gate. Some people who fled found other Soviet uh, partisan groups, groups, some of whom accepted Jews and protected them, which was officially um, the, the partisan law that Stalin had uh, implemented, that anyone who could carry a gun is, uh, is, uh, is allowed to join. But uh, despite the official regulations, there was a lot of anti-Semitism among uh, Soviet partisans, um, and uh, sometimes partisans murdered uh, Jews uh, who came to join the unit. Um, Soviet Jews fighting the Nazis, and they somehow, uh, I'm sorry, Soviet partisans fighting the Nazis, and they somehow decide to, to murder potential fighters as well. So a very odd situation. Um, after the establishment of the United Partisan Command in May 1942, under the direction of Moscow, and the consequent establishment of military discipline among the partisans, so a lot of these anti-Semitic occurrences uh, abated. Uh, it was much less later on in the war. So information spreads around the Novogrodek ghetto that there are two non-Jewish families, one Polish and one Belarusian, with homes not far from the town, who were going to assist Jews trying to join the Bielskis. So the Jews in the Novogrodek ghetto, Novogrodek ghetto know about the Bielskis, and they know that there's non-Jewish families who will help escapees get to the Bielskis. Um, and uh, they're both, both those families are recognized by, by Yad Vashem as righteous among the nations. So and there's others as well. I mean, any survivor, anyone who escaped, had to have been helped at one point or another by peasants. Uh, so the fact that there's hundreds of survivors would indicate that there was a fairly large number of people who were willing to engage and rescue and help the escapees. So we, we have to assume that there were quite a few Belarusian uh, peasants who did uh, assist escaping Jews, but not many of their names are known. Um, and here we get to the important point. The third massacre takes place on February 4th, 1943, where 510 people 
in the Parasheka, the other, the other part of the ghetto, not the courthouse, uh, were murdered. In other words, the entire ghetto, almost no survivors. So now it's only the Jews in the courthouse. And the daily food ration was cut to 125 grams of bad bread. The Germans wanted to eliminate all the Jews, they wanted to liquidate the ghetto, but they still needed the best craftsmen. So they divided the Jews by giving some of them more food than the others. In the end, they murdered another 300 people, Jews in a massacre right outside the courthouse. Again, when I interviewed Fanya Dunyats, she told me she witnessed it from her room in the courthouse on May 7th, 1943. So now, on May 7th, 1943, this left only 232 Jews left. Uh, there was already a resistance committee organized by Dr. Kagan from Baranovich, who is now in the Novogruda ghetto, and there were some other activists. They decided to make a copy of the keys to the main gate, and then they would rush the guards, guards and break out of the camp. And they set the date for April 15, 1943. But when the day came, the wife of a uh, of one of the uh, a doctor in the camp. Uh, she threatened to inform on the resistance because she feared her husband would be left behind because he's wounded, he's, he's sick, and then he would be killed by the Germans. So the plan was aborted at that time, um, and they decided to think of another plan. In the summer of 1943, the resistance group smuggled in a radio, which fortified their resolve to find a way to escape because more news of Soviet successes reached them. This is the summer of 1943, it's after Stalingrad. So they're hearing about the Battle of Kursk and the, the Red Army is on the offensive. The, the Germans are retreating. They also heard about the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising. So they see that Jews in ghettos can rise up against the Nazis. They hear that the Soviets are defeating the Nazis. So this stiffens their resolve that they're going to survive this terrible war, this terrible Holocaust, if they just wait it out a little bit longer. So the weapons are smuggled in. Uh, they think they might do a revolt. Uh, rifles, handguns, hand grenades. Um, but, th- but at this point, they decided they're going to have a new plan. Uh, to dig a 100-meter tunnel. It's over 300 feet. Under the fence of the courthouse ghetto into the adjoining fields. So they start digging in July. And a lot of technical difficulties. It was each day done by several volunteers. Um, they had very well-qualified craftsmen who oversaw the entire project, engineers and Jews who, who knew what they were doing. Jack Kagan was one of the main organizers of the escape, but there were several others as well. And the earth from the tunnel was put in the lofts uh, of, the, of the buildings where they lived in the courthouse and the garbage containers. They also made false walls in their barracks where they hid dirt. And they used spoons to dig and it was about two meters wide and high, just enough for people to crawl through. So it was very claustrophobic. Um, as the work progressed, electricity was installed. Uh, they jacked it off the main line without the Nazis noticing. And electricians prepared to cut the projectors of the, of the courthouse camp by short-circuiting the line on the night of the escape. They have like a primitive trolley line, like a coal miner's little trolley installed, and this carried out the earth and put it into the false walls that they had built within the barracks. And uh, the breakout was planned for August. But then another thing happened. The Germans cut the wheat in the fields so there's no place to hide during the escape. So what do they do? It's incredible. 
They extend, they keep on digging. They, the tunnel was originally 100 meters. They dig in another 150 meters. So it was a 250 meter tunnel. That's, uh, I mean, I don't have the exact conversion rate in front of me, but I know a meter is longer than a yard. So we're talking about uh, um, 750, more than 750 feet. I mean, nearly 1,000 feet. Who knows? And it took another month for them to dig with their spoons this, this, this further into the tunnel and find places to hide the dirt. Now, um, so they, they uh, which is providential, because if they had broken out in August, the Nazis were in the middle of an operation cleaning out the forest of partisans. They basically invaded the forest. They were looking for the Bielskis and the Soviet partisans, which is another story uh, during August. As I had the Novogrudic uh, ghetto escapees gone in August, they probably would have gotten caught by the Nazis then who were patrolling the forest. But um, instead, they, um, they, they went in September, the end of September. Uh, another thing, another providential thing that happened, again, it's things that, the factors that went into the success of this escape was that the SS was given in order to liquidate the last Jews of Novartic in, uh, in July. Um, and, uh, and, and the SS said, if we do that, then in Lida, which is not far away, and there's still 2,000 Jews in the Lida ghetto, so they're going to hear about it, and they're going to revolt, because they're going to figure that they're next. And since there are a lot, of, there are a lot there's 2,000 of them there, so they would have to kill the Lida Jews first, and then they would get to Novartic afterwards. So the, the Novogrudic, excuse me, Novogrudic, Novartic, um, so that saved Novogrudic as well. They were still alive. So the problem is, is that this resistance group was a small group until this point, and most uh, and most of the Jews were not involved. So again, this is why it's included in this series. It's Jews saving other Jews. Of course, the Bielski part is Jews saving other Jews, but even within the Novogrudic tunnel escape, it's Jews saving other Jews. Why? Because this is the most astounding thing you'll hear in this series, maybe in your whole life. The committee, the resistance committee, saw that there was internal opposition of other Jews in the ghetto to the breakout. So they could decide on one of three things. Either they could decide, okay, we're not going. We could decide that we're going, we don't care what anyone else thinks, and everyone else can be at risk because the Nazis might retaliate on the ones who were left in the ghetto. Or they can force everyone to come with them because no one wants to stay just in case the Nazis retaliate. They didn't do any of those. They had a democratic vote. That's right. Democratic vote inside the Novogrida ghetto. Should we use the tunnel? Now, they just spent two months digging this tunnel. They hid the dirt in false walls. They were about to go out. They, it's 250 meters long. And a couple of nights before, they have a vote. Should we go? Should we not? 165 Jews voted in favor of using the tunnel. 65 voted against. It was a clear majority. And this was a case where the minority conceded their loss to the majority. And uh, remember, the Kushners were involved here also. And those who voted against also participated in the escape. In other words, they went along with the majority vote. And on the night of September 26, 1943, uh, 232 Jews, basically all of the camp inmates, except for a few who preferred to stay and hide. Um, 
and it was crowded, claustrophobic. You basically went behind the person in front of you. There's no the electricity had been cut. It's pitch black. You're in a tiny little tunnel. I mean, just to think about it, you get claustrophobic. Um, it's 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 and they crawl through. It's 250 meters long, crawling through this tiny tunnel. You don't know if it's going to collapse. You don't know what's going to happen when you're going to get out. You can barely breathe. And each and every person there made a decision to go through the tunnel. And, uh, and the, you know, the families they built afterwards and their survival and everything is because they made that decision. Um, many of them were caught. About uh, 60-something Jews were caught and killed, but about 170 managed to get, get away. Most of them, almost all of them, joined the Bielski uh, partisans. And, um, and uh, you know, about a year later or so, uh, the um, the a uh, little less than a year later, the Russians uh, liberated Novogrudik, and uh, and they um, there was a they, they, the Bielski partisans marched into the town, and and uh, and you know, all the Novogrudik survivors with Bielski, um, you know, they couldn't rebuild Jewish life in Novogrudik, so most of them came to Israel or the United States. Um, so. The reason that, I mean, more Jews survived in Novogrudik than probably almost anywhere else in Belarus. Uh, probably easily provable. And the reason is obvious, because they were saved by the Bielski partisans. Uh, but it's also because they dug the tunnel and got out. So it's a combination <clears throat> of this of this tunnel escape plus the Bielski partisans um, and that enabled so many Jews to survive. Uh, Bielski saved over 1,200 Jews in his uh, family camp. So the 170 or so from the Vardik was just one little contingent of the Bielski partisan. And um, he was able to create a family camp. It numbered, like I said, 1200, over 1,200 Jews. And the agreement that he had with nearby Soviet partisan groups was that, you know, there was a fighting force among the Bielski partisans. About 200 of them or so were fighters. The rest were civilians, you know, men, women, children, young, old, sick, elderly, whatever it was. Um, and uh, the agreement was that they supplied the necessary services to surrounding Soviet partisan groups, fixing weapons, laundry, cooking, um, all the services that that the Soviet partisans would need. Um, and that's how they survived in the forest uh, during during that time. Now, um, now, during the last time period where, where the Nazis basically uh, realized that the Soviet partisans in the Nalabaki forest had controlled the forest and the Nazis no longer went in, so they were able to pretty much operate freely in the forest. They built more permanent dwellings and they had, uh, you know, cultural events and, and, and you know, shops and, 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 you know, craftsmen. And it was almost like a shtetl. In the, the Bielskis really recreated a Novogrudik type of shtetl in the forest during that last year. But before that, they were always on the run. They were running away from the Nazis. They were slowly growing. Um, you know, the, uh, the, the, the Bielski's brothers themselves, those four brothers, it was Tuvia, the leader of the group, and Zeus or Zisel or however you pronounce his name, and Asael and Aaron. And they're, you know, in the initial stage, they're fugitives hiding with their non-Jewish friends. They refused to leave and live in the in the ghetto. Most of their families had already been killed with the initial murders of the Nazis in the summer of 1941. So until the summer of 1942, they're living as fugitives, and they uh, and they buy a few weapons, they obtain a few weapons, 
And then from the summer of 1942 till the summer of 1943, there's this slow growth of this partisan detachment from a couple of people to a few hundred people. And Tovia Bielski builds it up and he contacts ghettos in Novogrudek and Lida and Jetel and in Branovich and other places um, and uh, and they and they and they slowly grow and during the later massacres there's active uh, you know escapes from the surrounding ghettos to come and join the Bielskis knowing that they'll be safe there so uh, Tovia Bielski said it is more important to save Jews than to kill Germans. And because Tovi Bielski and his people believe that, that's what makes them one of the greatest stories of the entire Holocaust. Because they were saving themselves, most of their family had been killed, and uh, they, you know, they had military experience. Tovi Bielski had served in the Polish army um, in the 1920s, and he and he is you know he's going to fight the Germans. He can join a Soviet detachment, or he can found a Jewish partisan unit. But it would be a Jewish fighting unit, like there were others. And instead, Tovia says, "No, you need to save Jews." And he's going to take big you know big liabilities. Jews who were sick, Jews who weren't mobile, they're elderly, they couldn't move. You know, they had to be on the run all the time. They couldn't contribute by fighting. They couldn't kill Nazis. They couldn't blow up trains. Babies, um, children, uh, you know, men, women, it didn't matter the age or background. And, and Tovia Bielski would not wait for Jews to come to him. He'd go into ghettos, send people into ghettos and beg them, leave the ghetto. The Nazis are going to kill everyone here and come and join me. I'll protect you. I'll feed you. I'll give you medical care, whatever you need. And it was not an easy situation to live in the forests through the winters, through the Nazi patrols, through the invasions into the forest, obtaining food, dealing with the Soviet partisans, very often anti-Semitic, um, a very, very challenging situation, and they managed to, to do it, um, and, they, and they saved all those Jews. Now, like I said, the alliances that he created with the Soviet partisans were crucial to that, and he would not have been able to survive without it. And... Um, and there was also strong discipline in the forest. You know, someone didn't behave, and then insubordination. You know, taking away the leadership from from uh, from Tovibielski, then he then that person had to be punished. And there was even an instance, which is portrayed very dramatically in the movie, but it actually did happen in reality um, that they had him killed. So it's a, a very tragic situation: a Jewish commander killing a Jewish partisan for insubordination, but in the forest during that, uh, during that time, uh, desperate times called for desperate measures, and it would have put everyone, everyone's life at risk, essentially. Um, the Soviet partisans recognized Tovia Bielski, respected him at much later in the war. It took a lot of time in building those relationships, uh, but eventually they ultimately recognized him as a, his own partisan uh, unit, and they even respected his philosophy of saving others, which took them a long time to connect to, because he was able to convince them that they would provide crucial services for the surrounding Soviet partisan units by doing their laundry, by cooking their food, by fixing their weapons, and uh, and so on. Um, so this is a, a and again, I, I just touched on the Bielski story. I think we can definitely get back to it another time. Um, the I just want to share one last thought because we'll, we'll have to, you know, just finish the whole story some other at some future opportunity. But why aren't these stories well known? 
uh, until the movie came out in 2008, even the Bielski story wasn't famous. Today, the Bielski brothers are somewhat more famous. Tovia himself never got any recognition in his own lifetime. He and Zeus, Zizel, his, his, his brother, they immigrated to Israel. The third brother uh, got killed. He, he joined the Red Army after the liberation of the Nalaboki Forest, of Novogrudek, that area. And he joined the Red Army and got killed in, 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 in battle in, 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 uh, in, 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 towards the end of World War II as a, as a Red Army soldier. And like I said, the fourth brother is still alive and well in Florida, Aaron. Um, so, but Tuvia and Zisel lived anonymously in Israel, you know, in the 1940s and 50s. In 1956, they both picked up and moved to Brooklyn. They ran a trucking company in Brooklyn, in New York. Tuvia died in 1987 in New York, unknown and almost penniless. He was buried on Long Island, but a year later he was reburied in Haramanuchis, this time with recognition. Full military honors, public funeral. I have to confess that I haven't been yet to his kever, but I will try to. Um, and, and today it's much more well known. Um, the Novogrudic Tunnel Escape is even less well known until today. Um, and here are some of the factors. First of all, the personalities of the Bielski brothers. They never sought recognition. They stayed out of the limelight. They, they were you know, simple people who felt that they did the right thing at the right time. And they felt that it's self-evident, it's self-understood that a Jew extends himself for their fellow Jew. They didn't do anything special. They truly saw it that way, that they did not do anything special, because what wouldn't you do for a fellow Jew? In general, there's always an extra focus on the righteous among the nations. Jews saving other Jews is not given as much prominence. Um, and of course, the Bielski's uh, lack of involvement in politics Unlike, for instance, the fighters of the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising, which were very politicized, so it, you know, it carries over into the politics of the state of Israel in the 1950s and becomes much more famous of a story, whereas the Bielskis never involved themselves and never aligned themselves with any politics. They were just about saving Jews, does not matter their affiliation or background. Uh, maybe it's a Novartic thing, I don't know. And uh, there are other factors as well. And Novogrudek is even more mysterious. Here is the greatest escape of the entire World War II and the Holocaust, completely unknown. And I hope that this uh, episode generates interest in the topic and people look it up and see some of the documentaries uh, that are available, can read some of the articles that are, uh, because of that heroic escape through the tunnel, joining the Bielski partisans and their two halves of the same hull. It would not have happened without Bielski and his partisans, and it wouldn't have happened had they not dug the tunnel to get out. So this is Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites. Looking forward to seeing you at the Mount Judah Cemetery at Friday, July 29th, 9.30 a.m. You can sign up on my website, yehudageber.com, or to invite me for a lecture, be in touch with me. Uh, you could subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on Podbean or your favorite podcast platform, and I hope you enjoyed.